When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am one of the hosts of the channel, Shatranjay Mall. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Hiroko Matsuda about her new book, Liminality of the Japanese Empire, Border Crossings from Okinawa to Colonial Taiwan, which was published by the University of Hawaii Press in 2019. Professor Matsuda is an associate professor in the Faculty of Contemporary Social Studies at Kobe Gakuen University in Kobe, Japan. So welcome to the podcast today, Hiroko. Uh, Thank you for having me today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Um, Our first question is always biographical. So I'd like to ask you about your background. Where did you grow up? And how did you become a historian of Japan and East Asia? Uh, and related to that, how did you develop an interest in Okinawa and Taiwan? Uh, yes, um, as you said, I currently live in Kobe, Japan, but I was raised in a part of the greater Tokyo, Kawasaki and Yokohama city. Originally, I had no relation to either Okinawa or Taiwan. But my interest in East Asian history started to develop when I was an undergraduate student in Tokyo. I entered an undergraduate program in 1995 when Japanese people were marking the 15th anniversary of their loss in World War II. The early and mid-1990s were a time of so much debate over Japanese aggressions beyond the Asia-Pacific region. I wanted to learn how the Japanese had become so aggressive to its neighboring countries. And having learned about Japanese imperial history, I realized that the Japanese annexation of the Ryukyu Kingdom was the first step of Japan's imperial expansion. So I was convinced that learning Okinawa modern history would be the best way to start studying Japanese imperial history. But at that time, I didn't consider doing research into Taiwan's history. In fact, I encountered Taiwan's history in Okinawa. At the early stage of my PhD program at the Austrian National University, 
I only considered investigating Okinawa history in relation to Japan and perhaps the U.S. But when I visited the Yayama Islands, uh, which is located in the most southern part of the Ryukyu Archipelago, for the first time I learned the very close historical relationship between Yayama and Taiwan. It was indeed an eye-opening experience. I was convinced that I needed to learn about Taiwan, Taiwanese history in order to understand the modern history of Okinawa, in particular the southern part of the archipelago, like Ishigaki Island, Iriomote Island, or Yonaguni Island. I'm not sure whether you have heard about these islands, but, but this is kind of like part of the Yayama archipelago. So this is how I developed my interest in Okinawa and Taiwan. Thank you so much for sharing that, um, Hiroko. I would next like to ask you about your new book, um, Liminality of the Japanese Empire. So how did you come to write this book and what do you see as its major arguments and contributions? First, my book shows how very common people in Japan contributed to building the Japanese colonial empire from the bottom up. Most scholars of the Japanese imperial history only utilize archival documents and oral histories of well-known figures. In contrast, I utilized all our histories from unknown common people, and I explained how these everyday people contributed to Japanese colonialism without any political motivations. The book is based on my doctoral dissertation, which I submitted to the Austrian National University in 2006. In writing the Japanese imperial history in Australia, my dissertation spontaneously became comparative. So during the 1990s and the early 2000s, historians of European colonial history questioned the dichotomy of the colonizer and the colonized and demonstrated different characteristics of colonial settlers, such as mixed blood children or poor white settlers who didn't fit into the generally accepted picture of colonial settlers. And I found these like arguments very interesting. And these individuals may be called liminal subjects of the European colonial, colonial empires. And I wanted to kind of explore the, what's the liminal subject of the Japanese colonial empires. And I thought Okinawan people embody the liminality of the Japanese empire, whereas Western imperial powers colonized regions that were geographically distant and highlighted physical differences of their colonized subjects, the Japanese colonized regions that that were geographically close. So it, it sounds obvious, but I think this is really um, uh, important and it really makes a difference in kind of colonial theories. Um, because in Western colonial theories, the physical difference of race is so important, Mm -hmm. but it cannot be, you know, automatically applied to the the East Asia context. Mm -hmm. So so in in Japan, like in East Asia, it was naturally very difficult for Japanese to justify their dominance over Taiwanese, Chinese, or Koreans by highlighting physical differences. And how did the Japanese establish colonial rule and create the dichotomy of the colonizer and the colonized in regions that were geographically close and in individuals so similar in physical appearance. 
And close observation of Okinawans in Japanese colonial history well demonstrates the nature of Japanese colonialism, which was not identical to the colonialism of Western imperial powers of that time. Plus, my book demonstrates the alternative vision of Okinawa modern history, which has been understood as minorities, victims, and marginal subjects of the Japanese national history. That's right, Okinawan people suffered greatly from Japanese people's discrimination, and they can be called the marginal subjects of the Japanese nation. But it is my contention that Okinawa modern history should be understood as both the marginalized of the Japanese nation and the liminal of the Japanese colonial empire or East Asia. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this this concept of liminality that you use um, to discuss Okinawa, I think this is this is something that I really sort of appreciated a lot from um, reading your book, um, and um, and and this question about like how the Japanese Empire like sort of created the dichotomy of colonizer and colonized. Like this is, I think, one of those big big questions of a Jap- the history of the Japanese Empire. Um, so your book sort of gives us a guide to sort of thinking about um, all of this. So um, so as you were just mentioning that you supplemented archival research with oral history. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, 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 my observation was that your book is very well researched. Um, so could you tell us more about how you went about your research for this book? Uh, where did you do your research and what sorts of sources did you use? Uh, yes. As I mentioned earlier, I utilized oral historical materials of the common people. So this made it possible to explore how everyday people or even ethnic minority groups contributed to building Japanese colonial empire. So this is something original, I think. And I conducted interviews with 44 women and men who had Okinawa roots and resided in colonial Taiwan for more than one year. I conducted the interviews mostly in Okinawa Prefecture, some in Japanese mainland, um, between 2003 and 2006, which was when I was in Australia, and again between 2008 and 2012 when I was doing a postdoc in Singapore and Taiwan and, and Tokyo. So some subjects were born in Okinawa and then migrated to colonial Taiwan when others were born in colonial Taiwan and repatriated to Okinawa or to mainland Japan after World War II. So unlike group migration to Manchukuo, the Japanese government rarely intervened in Okinawa migration to colonial Taiwan. Also, unlike the international migration to Brazil and or North America, Okinawan people migrated to Taiwan without any support of private agent companies. Okinawan people usually migrated to Taiwan through family and friend networks. So because of this, there are very few public documents recording details of um, movements between Okinawa and the colonial Taiwan, which is similar, like Okinawan people at the time, there's so many migrated to Osaka, but you know, we know that, but there are not many like public records, you know, like exploring so how many people migrated from Okinawa to Osaka. So that's a kind of similar thing. So I needed to use various sources such as local newspapers, 
in addition to governmental records to explore uh, like the migration and human movements between Okinawa and colonial Taiwan. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I mean, I, as you said, like, I think um, sort of adding oral history or oral sources is like a very big contribution um, of your book because it adds a new texture um, to the history. And it's, it's, it's wonderful that you were able to sort of get those voices or sort of use oral history um, before it was too late, um, uh, given that this is a history that happened so many decades ago. So as reflected in the title of your book, you uncover liminal spaces within the Japanese empire like Okinawa and Taiwan. Um, so for those in our audience not familiar with this history, could you tell us about how Okinawa and Taiwan were incorporated into the Japanese empire? Um, and in addition to that, could you share your thoughts with us about the unique positions of both places within the Japanese empire? Yes. Um, Okinawa Prefecture used to be an independent kingdom called the Ryukyu Kingdom. Uh, Despite the kingdom being independent, it had been under the strong influence of both Japan and China. On the one hand, one of the powerful Japanese clans, Shimazu, which is today known as Kagoshima Prefecture, manipulated the kingdom. On the other hand, the kingdom was officially recognized as a tributary country of China. So, like, Ryukyu Kingdom maintained uh, two, like, uh, strong connections um, and between Japan and, and China. And there were neither clear national border or national sovereignty in, in East Asia until the mid-19th century. But after the major restoration in the late 19th century, the Japanese government rushed to build a centralized nation state. And as a part of this nation-building project, the Japanese government forcefully incorporated the Ryukyu Kingdom into Japan and named it um, Okinawa Prefecture in 1879. Consequently, Okinawa Prefecture became the southern frontier of the Japanese nation. And then as a result of the first Sino-Japanese War, Taiwan was ceded to Japan in 1895. Both the Ryukyu Kingdom and Taiwan Island were annexed to Japan, but the Ryukyu Kingdom was annexed and became one of the Japanese prefectures under the rule of the Meiji Constitution. In contrast, Taiwan was ceded and officially became a Japanese colony that didn't fall under the Meiji Constitution. So Okinawa and Taiwan, it was kind of like a they were both under the very strong influence of China, but then the and then annexed to Japan in late 19th century. But like circumstances became kind of different. Like Okinawa became part of the nation, the inner territory, but then Taiwan became the outer territory and officially recognized a colony. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, that history is really uh, fascinating about how Okinawa at one point of time used to be an independent kingdom or it sort of was at, at the edge between China and Japan um, and, and sort of, you know, like the conception of sovereignty used to be so different, um, like before, like the Meiji Restoration and how like that that changed in the 19th century. Um, and then, of course, how Okinawa became this sort of border borderland between um, the Japan proper or the Japanese nation 
nation and then the its empire um yeah that, that that's all um uh, very interesting um so so thank you for sharing that so in chapter one, you discuss how Okinawa became a hub for migration towards the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. Um, so to which countries and regions did Okinawans migrate and what were their motivations to migrate and how were they treated and perceived by local communities in their destinations? Yeah, Okinawa people uh, migrated to like many places. But the first group of Okinawa migrants was sent to Hawaii in 18. 18- 1908, so it was kind of like a group migration, the first group migration. Mm -hmm. And since these migrants' economic successes were well known to locals in Okinawa, international migration became popular. Uh, And in the beginning, the popular destinations for Okinawa migrants were therefore Hawaii and then later the Philippines. And then Latin American countries such as Brazil and Peru became popular destinations later. And a good number of Okinawans also migrated to some parts of the Japanese colonial empire, especially um, Micronesia, like Nayo Gunto, uh, South Islands, and colonial Taiwan. Okinawans migrated to these destinations mostly for economic reasons, mainly anticipating better incomes. At the same time, the main island of Japan sent a great number of immigrants to these countries too. So Okinawans often suffer prejudice and discrimination from Japanese immigrants. So they usually lived in the like like same communities, but then like Japanese kind of look down Okinawan fellows. And locals in host countries noticed the division between the Japanese mainlanders and Okinawa immigrants and sometimes called Okinawa the other Japanese. So this is also kind of like the, the source of the suffering of Okinawa immigrants in, in host countries. Thank you. Um, I, I, before reading your book, I was not aware that Okinawans were like such a prominent part of the Japanese diaspora. But after reading this chapter, I sort of I realized that how important like Okinawan migration uh, was within Japanese immigration to um, Hawaii and um, other parts um, of the world. In chapter two, you write a local history of the Yayama Islands in the late 19th and early 20th century as Imperial Japan's southern borders shifted. Um, So the Yayama Islands are located at the southern tip of the Ryukyu Islands, and these islands were both a destination and source for migration. Could you tell us more about the history of these islands during this period and what you discuss about crossing the imperial and national borders? Yeah, um, thank you for asking. This is actually one of the the important points I really wanted to make in my book. Like, uh, you know, like, uh, it's it's known that Japanese people kind of settled and dominated in Okinawa. And also these, like, Okinawan people migrated to the, the international, like, um, in foreign countries. And But I really wanted to, uh, to illustrate the relationship between this like a Japanese settlement in Okinawa and Okinawa migration to the colony. So Yayama archipelago comprises one fourth of Okinawa prefecture. So it's kind of uh, covers a large part of the prefecture, mm-hmm. but it is less popular. It was less populated and less cultivated before. 
And as it is remote from the main island of Okinawa, things like a money-based economy had not been introduced during the era of the Ryukyu Kingdom. Many of the local islanders lived on farming and communities were self-contained. And soon after the Japanese annexation of the Ryukyu Islands, Japanese mainlanders reached Yayama to find business opportunities. And some started commercial businesses and others began reclamation projects in on Ishigaki Islands and some some like may, bigger islands. So these pioneer Japanese settlers introduced the money economy and dominated commercial business on the islands. And after the First Sino-Japanese War, the seaway between Japan and Taiwan Island was opened. And Japanese ships usually departs Kobe and put in several Japanese ports and touched the Ayama uh, before arriving in Taiwan. So in other words, the Yayam Islands became the relay point of the Imperial Seaway between Japan and colonial Taiwan. And Japanese settlers uh, who started new business in Yayama got involved in the trade business with colonial Taiwan. But local farmers slowly adapted to the new capitalist economy and they were marginalized while Japanese settlers dominated commercial business. And farmers eventually began to seek new opportunities outside of Yayama um, because Japanese settlers dominated commercial trade with Taiwan in their, their home islands. And local farmers increasingly migrated to Taiwan to find better opportunities. So they were kind of like a different like layers of the relationship between mm-hmm. Yayama and Taiwan created. Thank you. Um, yeah, the, the, it, it's, this is something that sort of those of us who are maybe not as who sort of study about Japan, what we need to sort of realize or what we sort of discover as we study Japan's geography and Okinawa's geography is that these places like Yayama Islands, as you mentioned, they're much closer to Taiwan than they are to say the other parts of Japan. So it sort of makes sense that there were border crossings and that these people um, from Yayama Island were migrating for opportunities into Taiwan. Um, yeah, yeah um, that, that's that's really interesting. And that how like there were Japanese settlers coming into Yayama Islands and then the locals of those islands sort of were moving to another place that is Taiwan. Um, so thank you for sharing that. So in chapter three, you delve more deeply into the lives of Okinawan migrants in Taiwan. Um, You examine their life stories and pay attention to two facets. Um, So firstly, you discuss gender. um, And then you also discuss the liminal position of Okinawans as both colonized subjects, um, but also as colonizers who had acculturated to mainland Japanese linguistic um, and social customs and behaviors. Um, so could you tell us a little more about this? Uh, yes. Uh, chapter 3 especially focuses on young Okinawa migrants who came to Taiwan to find work. But Okinawa migrants, especially from like Yayama Islands, um, Miyako Islands maybe, most of them didn't have any work experience and had never left their home islands before. And they had very few political motivations, if any. And my interview research shows like some came to Taiwan only because they wanted to find better jobs. 
while others simply wanted to experience urban life in Taipei City. So like after 1920s and 1930s, Taipei really developed to become a kind of modern city, mm-hmm. uh, while like Yayama Island still remained kind of like uh, remote um, farming commi- villages. So the young people really wanted to experience like urban life not in Tokyo or Osaka, but in, in this colonial city. Mm-hmm. And so they didn't really have like, you know, political motivations like, oh, they wanted to invade or dominate Taiwanese, but still their everyday lives were deeply embedded in colonial culture, which mm-hmm. I really wanted to show in this chapter. The Japanese colonial rule in Taiwan was underpinned by the, the hegemony of Japanese culture. But at the time, if anyone, no matter whether Japanese or Taiwanese or Okinawans, wanted to be successful, they had they had to master the Japanese language, Japanese etiquette, mm-hmm. and Japanese way of doing things. So we intend to assume that Taiwanese people were the, the ones forced to learn the Japanese language and Japanese social cap- customs, like, you know, the previous, like, literatures, like, really focus on this assimilation policies and how Taiwanese became Japanese. But, like, my book illustrates how Okinawans strove to become part of the ruling class by mastering elements of Japanese culture. And by doing so, Okinawans spontaneously got involved in the Japanese colonial culture and contributed to maintain the superiority of the Japanese over Taiwanese. Thank you. I think in this chapter, you really address this topic of liminality and the fact that, you know, Okinawans were both um, sort of gaining from the colonial culture, being assimilated into the colonial culture. In that sense, they were, I guess, for you could call them like colonizers, but at the same time, it wasn't something that they were sort of doing, um, you know, um, out of their own impetus, but they sort of were also like in a way colonized. Um, so this sort of, it, it boils it boils down to the heart of the subject, so to speak, um, that um, Okinawan sort of occupied this um, sort of interesting position um, within the Japanese um, empire. Um, so related to that, Okinawans also pursued imperial careers in the Japanese empire. And part of that was embarking on imperial schooling. Um, so in the next chapter, in chapter four, you discuss young Okinawans who migrated to Taiwan to receive a higher education. Um, and you particularly focus um, on medical education in Taiwan. Um, so in, in, in regard to this chapter, um, I, I was sort of caught, I sort of, my, my curiosity was piqued by two things. Um, so why why did the Japanese establish uh, medical and educational institutions in Taiwan? Um, and how did Okinawan migrants pursuing an education in Taiwan occupy a liminal position in the Japanese empire? Uh, yes. Um, initially, Japan introduced medical education for practical reasons, I think. So in earlier times, the Japanese greatly suffered from tropical diseases, and they just wanted to improve hygienic condition in Taiwan by introducing Western medicine. And so to introduce Western medicine, they wanted to to have more medical doctors or establish uh, educational institutions. And so that's one thing. And as to educational policies for locals, in Taiwan, the Japanese colonial government put efforts into elementary education and Japanese language education. Uh, 
But the government was reluctant to offer higher education to local youth. So they established lots of elementary schools, but they didn't uh, establish like many like higher educational institutions, unlike in Japanese mainland. So medical schools were one of the very few educational professional institutions where local Taiwanese could receive a higher education and become professionals. So many Taiwanese elite entered medical schools not because they necessarily wanted to become medical doctors, but simply because they wanted to a better education. Mm-hmm. So meanwhile, there were no medical schools in Okinawa Prefecture. So because of that, Okinawa youth migrated to Taiwan to enter medical school. On one hand, Okinawans were disadvantaged because the Japanese government had little interest in developing medicine and medical education in Okinawa. So Okinawans, if they wanted to uh, become medical doctors, they have to go to somewhere, somewhere outside of Okinawa. So it mm-hmm. means that only the rich a uh, family can send their children to medical schools. So that's kind of really uh, shows how Okinawans were you know, marginalized in Japan. But on the other hand, Okinawans were advantaged when they migrated to Taiwan and entered medical school as Japanese students. So this case, I think, Interestingly, shows the complicated relationship between Okinawa and colonial Taiwan. So Okinawa it was really liminal. Like uh, we we can't say that Okinawa was uh, like downgraded, uh, the marginalized than Taiwan. Can't say that, but Taiwan was uh, better in Okinawa. So I I can't say, but it's really liminal, like a position, and uh, in Japanese Empire. So the so Okinawan people actually were disadvantaged, but uh, they utilized their position and, and border cross uh, to Taiwan. That's very intriguing. Um, that the sort of the limin- again as uh, going back to the thesis, the title of the book or the thesis of your book, the liminal position um, of Okinawans. I think this this topic of like um, Okinawans immigrating to Taiwan and pursuing a medical education there that sort of um, sort of captures um, uh, the the limina- liminality of their subject position um, in the Japanese um, Empire. Um, so in chapter five, you discuss how Okinawan migrants in Taiwan navigated and negotiated their identity uh, in the Japanese settler community. Since these migrants were quite diverse, some assimilated into a Japanese identity within the settler population, while others asserted their Okinawan identity. Could you tell us more about what you discovered about the experiences and identities of Okinawan migrants in Taiwan? Uh, yes, I think like chapter five, simply speaking, I just want to, to show that it's, it's really problematic to essentialize Okinawan migrants. Mm-hmm. Like we can't really say, oh, there is Okinawan people they have, uh, because they, have, uh, they were from Okinawa or they were, uh, have, uh, they were ancestors from Okinawa. So we can't really say that, but that, that's really... Um, how to do the historical research um, without essentializing, you know, the, like a minority group. But 
And chapter five, we consider the ethnic identity and assimilation of Okinawa immigrants into mainstream Japanese culture in Taiwan. And Okinawa migrants in Taiwan came from diverse, often hybrid backgrounds. And along them, alongside them, increasingly more second and third generation of Okinawans, the children or the grandchildren of Okinawans who had not been born and had never lived in Okinawa were growing up in the Japanese settlement in Taiwan as well. So I would call them the Creole, Creole Japanese mm-hmm. and who didn't really possess a strong Okinawa ethnic identity. Or maybe I, I, I might say like Okinawa diaspora in Taiwan. Um, and they were collectively, I mean, but like they don't have a strong sense of Okinawa identity, but they were still collectively identified as Okinawans and thus endured negative racial stereotyping and prejudice in Taiwan. To survive discrimination on the past to an imperial career in Taiwan, most Okinawa migrants considered assimilation to be mandatory. And this chapter also indicated um, there was also conscious effort to recover Okinawan pride in Taipei, but this uh, movement uh, important, but uh, they didn't really uh, gain much support from the Okinawa settler community at that time. Thank you. Um, so in the last chapter, you turn your attention to the issue of repatriation uh, at the end of World War II um, amidst uh, Japan's defeat in the war um, and amidst the changing sovereignties of Taiwan, the Ryukyu Islands and Japan itself. So what were the fates of Okinawan migrants in Taiwan following Japan's defeat and the end of Japanese colonialism in Taiwan? Um, yes, after World War II, most Japanese in Taiwan are repatriated to the Japanese main island by landing ship tanks, which were offered by the U.S. And repatriations from Taiwan to the Japanese mainland were relatively peaceful. And because this was relatively peaceful, that this like history didn't receive much attention. But meanwhile, some Okinawans secretly repatriated to the Miyako and Yayam Islands by fishing boats because they were geographically close. And But those who wanted to repatriate to the main island of Okinawa, not Miyako or Yayama Islands, were left behind in Taiwan because they were not allowed to reach the main island of Okinawa, where the U.S. military was rushing to build military bases. So on Yayama and Miyako Islands, the, U, uh, the U.S. military didn't build the bases. So... so the kind of the U.S. military knew that like uh, people secretly uh, went back to uh, to these islands by fishing boats, but they kind of let, let let them go. But they didn't let them go to the main island of Okinawa because uh, they w- were uh, building the U.S. Uh, the military bases. So what happened to these Okinawans who wanted to uh, go back to the main island of Okinawa? Um, they had to remain in Taiwan without any support from the government. And they established the Okinawa Mutual Aid Association and managed to survive until the U.S. military 
allowed them to land on the main island of Okinawa in September 1946, uh, almost one year after World War II. Thank you. Um, so I think uh, what was going to be my next question, you already partially answered it, uh, but I, I'll ask it anyway. Um, so you note that Japanese and Okinawan repatriation from Taiwan has not received the attention that, say, um, the repatriation of Japanese settlers from Manchuria um, has received. So could you tell us a little more about why this may be the case? Um, but in addition to that, the sort of broader question I have is, would you say that Okinawa and Taiwan have been relatively neglected in the English language and Japanese language histories of the Japanese empire compared to other regions like, say, Manchuria? Uh, yes. Um, yeah, I, as I have uh, mentioned a little bit, uh, because the repatriation to the Japanese main, uh, mainland was peaceful, but like a, a as many people know, like repatriation to from Manchukuo or the Korean Peninsula were really uh, difficult, and many people died in the process of repatriation. So it really received much attention and kind of created the really that the image, tragic image mm-hmm. of the repatriation from the colonial empire to Japan. But it didn't really fit into that, you know, the, the repatriation from Taiwan to Japan. So that kind of like was the reason why uh, the repatriation from Taiwan was didn't receive attention. But uh, as to your the second to answering your second question, and Taiwan studies is a relatively new discipline, and once that started developing in earnest only after the martial law was lifted in 1987, when Taiwanese people gained the freedom of speech under the democratic government. And under the Nationalist Party's one-party rule, it had been difficult to study the history of Taiwan, um, especially about the history of uh, Japanese colonialism. And since the 1990s, however, Taiwan studies as a field has rapidly developed, especially within Taiwan. But even so, in the United States or elsewhere, postgraduate students in Asian studies tend to study China, Japan, or Korea, not Taiwan, partly because there are so few Taiwan studies programs established in major universities. So it is not surprising that Taiwan's history has been relatively neglected in English language history of the Japanese Empire. And as for Okinawa history, scholars and students tend to pay more attention to the Battle of Okinawa and post-war Okinawa history than to pre-war history, especially the relationships between Okinawa and other Asian countries. This is partly because that um, that much uh, documents or archival documents were burned down during the uh, Battle of Okinawa. So it's just practically difficult to do the research on pre-war history, and that's why you know people just uh, don't study and so don't know about the pre-war history. So that's really sad history and sad situation. And I think there, those are some of the reasons why Taiwan's colonial history, including the Japanese and Okinawa repatriations from Taiwan, has not received as much attention as other parts of the Japanese empire. 
thank you um yeah this is that's all really interesting it's it's great now that you know more attention like your book for example but also other scholarly works are paying more attention um to sort of the neglected aspects of okinawa's history okinawa's colonial history but also sort of this burgeoning field of taiwan studies um i i i hope that there's more scholars who um contribute to that Um so did border crossings between Okinawa and Taiwan continue in the post-war period um and what are the legacies of the Japanese colonial era connections between Okinawa and Taiwan So the ground battle utterly destroyed Okinawa's lives and provisions and goods of all description descriptions were in short supply after under the US military occupation so the people of the Yayam Islands and the Miyako Islands is secretly communicated with Taiwan and smuggled food and daily necessities from Taiwan for survival uh, beyond that fishers continue to do their business in the sea between Okinawa and Taiwan so that's kind of like a communication um uh, soon after the world war 2 And although my book primarily explores Okinawans who migrated to colonial Taiwan, uh in the other direction, some Taiwanese actually uh had migrated to Okinawa before the war. And some of them were still living in Okinawa when war broke out, and they maintained close relationship with Taiwan and and to date. But I should say since the war ended, there has been far less communications between Okinawa and Taiwan. Thank you. Um I I mean the I think the Taiwan sort of has a very unique relationship uh, with the Japanese um empire with the legacy of Japanese imperialism because um um just sort of from my observation it seems that uh, people in Taiwan sort of even though they might be like speaking Chinese like many of them sort of feel some affinity to Japan today um and they might want to study Japanese and so on. so it's interesting to think about um the post-war um history of uh, relations between Japan and Taiwan but also more specifically like as you were just telling us about the post-war connections between Okinawa and Taiwan as um these two regions um actually i have a follow-up question um or sort of uh, it's a more like an off the cuff question um so you 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 told me earlier that you also published this book in japanese so could you tell us uh, for especially for those in our audience who may know japanese or might be reading japanese could you tell us a little more um about the japanese uh, version of this book the title and sort of the similarities and differences between the japanese book and this english language book um liminality of the japanese empire Oh okay. Um so my so uh, my Japanese book so it's based on the same research which I conducted um um from the the PhD program and but then the title is uh in Japanese Okinawa no Shokuminshiteki Kindai Colonial Modernity of Okinawa uh border crossing from Okinawa to uh Taiwan. So I think like uh, like the title really sheds lights on the Okinawa's colonial modernity and i discussed the concept of colonial modernity it doesn't i mean it, it doesn't mean that i um i explore the um okinawan people's modernity in the colony but i really wanted to explore how colonial 
uh, was Okina's modernity. Means how like uh, Okina's modernity was not uh, didn't mean the kind of emancipation from the past, but more this like Okina people's modern experience itself uh, has the colonized, colonized and colonizing character. So that was kind of like. I, I didn't really discuss much in the English book, but in Japanese version, I discuss more. And I think in Japanese version, um, because uh, I'm living in Japan and I write in, in Japanese language, I really wanted to communicate with the, the scholars who are working on Okinawa history. Uh, whereas in English book, I wanted to communicate with uh, the people who are uh, working on the colonial history, like West, Western origin or whatever. Uh, so that's a kind of the difference between the two books. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so I hope uh, those who are in our audience who listen to the interview, I hope they buy either, if they speak Japanese or if they read Japanese, I hope they buy your Japanese book. But in addition to that, I also hope um, they read um, your book, um, Liminality of the Japanese Empire. Um, so thank you for taking so much time from your busy schedule to talk with me today, Hiroko. Um, so before we end, may I ask you what you are working on right now? Uh, yes, um, I think you mentioned a bit about like a post-war, you know, like a situation between like colonial, uh, no, 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 Taiwan and Japan, Taiwanese perspective towards Japanese. And I, I am also interested in this like a post-war history of Taiwan and Japan. Um, I am currently working on two projects. One is a social history of self-defense forces. Um, that sounds really different from my previous project, but this really comes out, out from my interest in my interest in Okinawan history. So there is a voluminous literature on the social history of Okinawa and the U.S. military bases. Mm-hmm. And so the U.S. military bases is really the one of the biggest uh, the themes of Okinawa post-war history studies, but there are very few social history studies of self-defense forces. So in recent years, the um, Okinawa, especially the Miyako and the Iayama Islands, have received more self-defense forces bases. And so I would like to explore how people in Japan and Okinawa have been co-living with self-defense forces. So this is one of my projects which I'm working on. The, the second project is about the post-war relationship uh, between Japan and Taiwan, or perhaps the post-colonial history of Taiwan. And I just finished writing a book chapter uh, in Japanese on post-war compensation for Taiwanese who joined the Japanese military during the World War II. And I didn't sufficiently write about Taiwanese people, then especially about the Taiwanese who uh, joined the Japanese military uh, in my book, like a limitality of Japanese empire. And I'm not regretting, but I really want to explore uh, Taiwanese people's historical experiences. I want to focus on like Taiwanese people's experiences. And there, uh, 
perspectives and relationships with Japanese people. So, so in my in my current project. Thank you. Those sound like really fascinating um, and really promising projects, and I'm really keen to read um, your future work, um, the book, the uh, your research on the so self Japanese self defense forces sounds really interesting, um, as does the uh, your other project on um, Japan, on the relations between and connections between Japan and Taiwan, um, and in the post war period. Um, so I hope more of our audience um, they follow your work um, in the future. Um, so this was an interview with uh, Professor Hiroko Matsuda about her book, uh, Liminality of the Japanese Empire, Border Crossings from Okinawa to Colonial Taiwan. Um, So I hope you have a good day. Um, Thank you, Hiroko. Thank you very much. (laughs) It was really fun to talk to you.